in the course of which he mentioned there are only two words in English which begin with the sound sh, but are not spelt sh. One listener wrote in to say that this didn't seem true. That listener wrote, there's only one such word, and it's the word sugar. She received a postcard in reply on which there was just one sentence. Madam, are you sure? <laughs> Being sure is a perilous business and nowhere more so than in matters of spiritual life. John insists that God wants us to know that we are his and that our Christian experience is real. God wants us to know that we are his and that our Christian experience is real. And you can push that plus button on the computer. There we go. For those filling in the blanks and the notes, God wants us to know we are his and our Christian experience is real. First John chapter 4, we're going to jump in in verse 13. We left off at verse 12 last week. And if you weren't here, you can find the video on YouTube, my channel, however you get to it. Um, go through the web, church website and I think it will direct you there. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen? If we were to outline chapter 3 here, we could make three sections and three separate outlines, I suppose. In verses 1 through 6, we are looking at the exhortation, do not believe all the spirits, because not all of them are spokespersons for God. Some of the spirits that speak and prophesy, he said, are from the kingdom of darkness. They have the spirit of Antichrist. In verse 7 through 12, we are exhorted, love one another. 
you must love one another. Verse 13 appears to be a new paragraph, which means that a new paragraph, we're going to have a little twist in our, in our subject matter. But yet it's still related to them. We've been talking for the last few weeks that within this letter, John is telling people what it is in our life that authenticates uh, the reality of our Christianity, that we are Christians. He's, he said there's three different tests that, that God has for us laid out in this, in this message for us. There's the, the doctrine test. What do you believe? What you believe about Jesus is of utmost importance. There's the ethic test, or the ethical test. Uh, how do you live? How do you live? He said, if, if you're not obeying the word of the Lord, then you really don't love God. You really haven't been born again, if you're not endeavoring to obey. And then there's the relationship test. Who do you love? Verses 13 through 21 are an affirmation of the doctrine test and the relational test. They are an affirmation of what we believe and who we believe and who we love. In this section, we see what we believe and who we love and how we live. They're all connected. They're all connected. What we believe and who we love and how we live, they cannot be separated. All three of them must come together proving that we've been born again. Any theology, now remember, he's writing to a group of people about a false doctrine, the Antichrist spirit that's risen up in the church that says Jesus Christ was not deity. He was a man that the Holy Spirit rested upon for a period of time and then lifted from him. Any theology that denies the deity of Jesus Christ robs people of the glory of of the love of God. Well, don't you think about that. It, when we deny that Jesus is deity, it robs people of the glory of the love of God. For God so loved that he gave his son. And it robs us of the ability to mature in that love. Because we don't believe that God is love in practice. But this we know. But this we know. We abide in him and he in us. We abide in him and he in us. Three times. Verse 13, verse 15, verse 16. He talks about this reciprocal relationship. Christ in me, and I'm in Christ. Or I'm in God, and God is in me. They go together. I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. We abide in him, he abides in us. In this part of chapter 4, John wants us to consider the evidences in our life that help us know that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. In a world 
where we are dependent upon our five senses. Is Missouri the show me state? A lot of people live that way. Show me. Show me. I want what I can touch, what I can see, what I can taste, what I can hear with my own ears. But God is not a collection of sensory data to be discovered and analyzed. He's not just a bunch of data to be discovered and analyzed. God is an infinite, eternal person with whom we have a, have a vital relationship. It is not by mistake that Jesus said, address him as Father. He's a spirit, you cannot see him, but that spirit is a person that we have a love relationship with. This relationship goes way beyond my feelings. I think that most of us discovered our feelings are really not a trustworthy source of guidance in life. My feelings are susceptible to being deceived. My feelings have a way of deceiving me. They can be deluded. Yet John is able to say, but this we know. And in this section, he gives us evidences that bear witness to this relationship we have with him. We are in him, and he is in us. Number one, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit. We read in verse 24 of chapter 3, Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. He abides in us by the Spirit. Now there's just a slight difference in what John says in those two verses. He enlarges on what he said in verse 24 of chapter 3 with this very important personal pronoun. He has given us His Spirit. His Spirit. Part of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. His Spirit lives in us. Remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus? And Jesus said to him, Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how do I go back into my mother's womb? He said, you don't understand. What's born of the water is flesh, but what's born of the Spirit is spirit. You need to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The night before Jesus went uh, to the cross, he said to the disciples, it's expedient for you. It's in your best interest that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send another comforter, a paraclete, one to come alongside of you. But he will not only be alongside of you, he will be in you. And it's the Holy Spirit. 
in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When a rushing mighty wind came into that room where there were people gathered together in a prayer service. And tongues of Coven tongues of fire sat upon them and began to speak in languages that they had never learned. And their prayer meetings spilled out into the streets. And people heard them glorifying God in languages from the different nations and said, what's going on here? And Peter began to preach to them about Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected. And they said to him, what must we do to receive what you have? And he said in Acts 2.38, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. We are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are submerged into the body of Christ by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, Paul said this, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We know that we've been born again because of the Spirit that is inside of it, that dwells in us. Paul said, The life I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who lives in me, who lives in me. We know that we have the Holy Spirit living in us because it was the Holy Spirit that revealed to you that you needed Jesus in the first place. You didn't come to the Lord because you found Him. He found you. It's His love that enables us. How do I know the Holy Spirit loves in me? It's His love that enables me to love people that before I would not have ever loved. And I know it sounds funny, but it's true for you too. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, Peace. It's probably most evidence when you have patience and meekness, gentleness. It's the Holy Spirit that gives to us the gifts of the Spirit. How do I know the Holy Spirit lives in me? The fact that I have spent the last X amount of years standing in front of people preaching, teaching, because as a kid, the last thing I ever wanted to do was publicly speak or be seen in public for that matter unless I was playing ball and then I didn't care who was watching because I was all playing ball. But to talk in front of people, I cannot tell you how red my face would get and how hot my ears would be and how much sweat would be in the palms of my hands. If I had to speak in front of people, I did not wear light-colored pants because they would be covered in sweat. But the Holy Spirit said, this is what I want you to do, and empowered me. My first sermon lasted probably five minutes, 
And I know some of you wish we'd go back to that. <laughs> Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. How much of the Holy Spirit did you receive when you got saved? The Holy Spirit is a person, a spirit person. One-third of the Holy Trinity, fully God. He does not come in pieces. He does not come in the installment plan. You don't get one part of the Holy Spirit, and I get another part. Now, I might get one gift, and you get another gift, because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But we get... 100% of the Holy Spirit. You don't get 10% down now, 1% every year until you die. When you were born again, you were baptized into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, and He moved in in all of His powers and faculties. The issue is not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but how much does the Holy Spirit have of you? That's the issue. How much... Of you does the Holy Spirit have. Ephesians 5.18 said, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit. Is the way that some of the, the Amplified Bible talks about and some of the other newer translations that would paraphrase it. This is an ongoing process to be continually filled. It means, when he talks about do not be drunk with wine, he's talking about living under the influence of spirit. Not the spirits in the bottle. But live under the influence of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Submit yourself to Him on an everyday, to His Lordship every day, all day long. Because the Holy Spirit living and reigning in us produces the characteristics of Jesus. The Holy Spirit living and reigning in us produces the characteristics of Jesus. His holiness, His righteousness, His mercy, and His love. As I said before, when you and I experience that ability to love others we maybe would not have loved before, we know that the Holy Spirit is living in us. When bitterness is, is sweetened, when hardness of heart is melted, and love is multiplied, we know that it's the Holy Spirit living and active in our lives. Number two, John says we have the testimony of eyewitnesses. We have the testimony of eyewitnesses. Verse 14 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We have seen and testified the Father has sent His Son. Let me remind you what He said in, in chapter 1, 1 John 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon of touch with our hands concerning the word of life. 
And the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. To us. We've seen. He said, we've seen it. We have the testimony, not of not just one person who found a special tablet and had the appearance of Jesus Christ and he's the only one who saw it. And he wrote a whole new book about we have witnesses who saw Jesus Christ live, die, and rise again from the truth. Jesus said this in John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And this is what he said to these apostles, And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He said, you are going to go and be the eyewitnesses to the reality of God sent me, his son, into the world to die. Peter sums it up really well. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths that when, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter can tell you, and John can tell you, about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when for a moment his flesh kind of fell off and his glory shined forth as bright as the sun. Peter and John can tell you they went into the tomb and saw the grave clothes empty and then they saw him face to face more than once. They watched him ascend into heaven. We have seen it. We have seen it. When we read the New Testament in our Bibles, we are reading the words of men who saw him, who touched him, who experienced his presence. They were there. They heard the words from Jesus' mouth that tell us how to love God and how to follow in his footsteps. They were commissioned to share their testimony of what they saw with the world. What John writes here about the spirit eyewitnesses blows huge holes in the Gnostics' false doctrine that Jesus was just a man and the Spirit of God came upon him for a period of time and used this man for ministry. They knew. They knew. Remember, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but the Father in heaven. John says we hear about the Spirit, we know about the Spirit because we have eyewitnesses. We know that Christ is in us because the Holy Spirit is in us and we have the testimony of eyewitnesses. Number three, 
We have acknowledged Jesus as God's Son. We have acknowledged Jesus as God's Son. Verse 15 of chapter 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. You all know three, John 3.16. People who have never been to church know John 3.16 because it's posted all over the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him. When we got saved... It was a matter of believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing that He died in our place, believing that God raised Him from the dead. And Romans 10 tells us that when we confess with our mouth He is Lord, we are saved. What we often do not think about, about the Christians in the first century living in the Roman Empire, the law of the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. There are several of the Caesars who claim to be gods in the flesh. The law was you declared them to be the Lord. John says that we know Christ is in us and we are Christ because our ongoing confession is this. Jesus is the Son of God and I will worship Him and Him only. Thousands of first century believers literally died because of their confession of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. They would not renounce their faith in Him when they were put before the executioner. They were crucified. They were impaled on stakes. They were fed to the wild animals in the arenas. A simple renouncing of Jesus would have spared their lives but they said, I'd rather die than renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. Still going on in the world today, in October 2021, the local police showed up at the home of Pastor Prem Singh in Janapur, Uttar Pradesh, India. One Sunday afternoon, they, they came and confiscated the offering from the service that day in his home. He had a home church. He instructed him, you stop all the prayer and worship meetings in this house. But he chose to obey God rather than men, like Peter, the book of Acts. On May 31st, 2022, around 40 Hindu people showed up and beat this pastor Prim unmercifully. After they beat him, they took him to the local police station, and the police beat him as well. In June of 2022, Pastor Prem was booked for outraging the religious feelings of the Hindus. Non-bailable involved a minimum of three years in jail if convicted. Some of you remember I put out a prayer request in June in behalf of Brother Prem. People all over the world prayed and 
by God's miraculous intervention, they let him out. They let him out. He still suffers from the effects of being beaten so brutally, physically. At the present time, some of his own family members, extended family, are part of the people persecuting him because he will not stop preaching Jesus Christ. I tell you that story to help us understand that confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Lord is more than a cerebral assent. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. It's a commitment of my whole being to Him as my Lord and Savior. It's a commitment of my whole being to Him as my Lord and Savior. It's not just a matter of feeling. It's a matter of standing on immutable doctrine. Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and God raised Him from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. He is the Son of God. Come live in me all my life. Take over. That's what we just sang a few moments ago. Next service, we're going to sing, Willingly we choose to surrender our lives. Willingly our knee will bow. With all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I confess you now, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Number four, we are secure in God's love. We are secure in God's love. We are confident of the fact that God loves us. Verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Last Sunday morning, we concluded the service by singing the Gaither song, I am loved. We're going to sing it again this morning at the end because that's the fifth point. I am loved. When we get a glimpse of what God did when he sent Jesus to become one of us, die on our cross in our place, and I know I keep plucking on this string, but somehow we have, to, we have to come to the foot of the cross and visualize what God did. What God did. The most, one of the most important things that you will learn in doctrine is this. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. God the Father loves me. Because we live in a, in a world of human beings where love is so conditional, we forget that there's nothing that you can do to cause God to love you any more than He does. He gave His very life for you. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. 
God so loved the world, the world, the ungodly, those who didn't care about him at all. God loves me. God loves you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but what we're reading in these verses is this. We were created to dwell in love. We were created to dwell in love. God created fish to live in water. He gave them a gill system. I don't understand all the science. But they were able to glean oxygen to feed their bloodstream in the water. If I do what they did, I'll drown. You take a fish out of water, you might as well put him in the frying pan. Because he's going to die. Just as God created fish to thrive in the water, He created us to live and thrive in the security of His love. Because He's the source of love. God is love. God is love. We need and we have the love of God And abiding in that love means I'm abiding in God and God is in me. And because He is love, I know I'm loved. And because I'm loved, I choose to love. I want to come to that from a little different angle. God chose to illustrate some theological truths and convictions through life experience. For example, rereading in Ephesians that the marriage of a man and woman is a picture of the marriage of Christ with the church. Marriage is a picture of the marriage of Christ with the church. I shared with you uh, probably five years ago now. Time goes by in a hurry. But on our 30th wedding anniversary, Vicki and I went and spent a few days in Leavenworth, Washington. While we were going there through those little shops, um, I purchased a card and a little plaque. And both of them said the same thing on them, big letters. I love you more. I love you more. On the day that we got married, we said to each other, I take you to be my wedded wife, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. There was strong emotion and strong conviction and strong commitment, at least on my part when we said those words. (laughs) But you know what? We are more secure 35 years later than we were on the day when we got married in the fact that we love each other. I, I can't perceive of anything that would separate us because we guard our hearts and we guard that love for each other. But that love has increased. That love has increased. I love her more now than I did then. 
Our marriage is based on commitments. The same is true of my relationship with God through my faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in my life. My identity and my self-esteem are found in his love for me. I am now his child. I am now a child of God. Verse 17 says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. As he is, so also are we in the world. A very interesting statement. As he is. I've heard some preachers, I think, that have misapplied this passage of Scripture. Does this mean I'm perfect? Because he certainly is. Does this mean I'm omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient? No. I think it goes back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him when we see him. Now we, right now, I am as he is in this sense. Romans tells me I am covered with his righteousness. I am clothed in his righteousness. I stand in the presence of God without sin. Not because I'm sinless, but because he is sinless. And he lives in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And my sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Makes me feel good. I don't know about you, but... As he is, I'm an heir, a joint heir with him. I'm ready to stand before God. I'm ready to stand before God. We may have confidence in the day, for the day of judgment. The day of judgment is going to be a great and terrible day. I think I read that in the book. There are going to be some people who are going to call. For the mountains to cover them. That's what the scripture says. Because they're not ready to stand before God. But because Christ is in me. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I can come and stand before him with peace in my heart. Knowing that my name is in the Lamb's book of life. Not because of my goodness. But because of the goodness of God. And the grace of God. And my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. We know that we are joint heirs with Christ. We know that now we are seated with Him in heavenly places. We know that we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. My mom's brother is at the point of Passing from this life to the next life. And the last text message that I shared with my cousin about midnight last night is he says he's at peace. You know what that means? He says, I'm ready to stand before the Lord. Why? Because he lives in us. And our faith is in Him. 
Which brings me to letter C. We have no fear. No fear. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear. This word appears four times in this verse. It's the Greek word phobos. It's one of those words that can have several meanings, several connotations to it. One of the meanings has to do with the English word that we have derived from this word phobos. And and that's that word phobia. Phobia. And I think that right here in this context, that's what he's referring to is a phobia. Let me give you a couple of definitions from modern day culture of what phobia is. It's an irrational, persistent fear or dread. An irrational, persistent fear or dread. You say, well, my phobia is irrational. Well, that's the second one. A fear that interferes in a person's life. A fear that interferes in a person's life. Looks like there's one extra S, E in there, but that's a matter. Interferes. I know people. We had a, I, when I was still at home, my parents' house, in my senior year of high school, I believe, well, maybe, no, it was probably my junior year of high school, we had a Wyoming couple of girls live with us, and one of them had this phobia that she could not drive over a bridge with her eyes open. <laughs> now, I'll talk about, now all of us had a phobia because she's driving, and we go across the bridge and she shut her eyes because she's afraid that they're going to fall in. An irrational, persistent fear of dread. He said, fear has to do with punishment. There's a certain amount of terror associated with this fear. John Eldridge, in his book, Waking the Dead, tries to make us aware of the fact that Satan begins attacking our heart from the time of childhood in order to cause us to lose our sense of identity and our sense of worth in God's eyes. Satan wants to trick us into living apart from God. And then when we do, you know what he says to you? You failed. You're not worth anything to God or anyone else. This leads to living a life of fear. We walk around fearing what people will think about us. We walk around feeling rejected because God doesn't want us. When we fear condemnation, It's hard to love and be loved. But notice this. Love, perfect love, and God is the only one who has perfect love, cast out fear. Love cast out fear. But notice this. Fear cast out love. Fear cast out love. When you're living with insecurity, it messes up your relationship with the people that you see. When you're living with a sense of worthlessness because of what Satan is saying to you, it messes up your ability to love and to be loved by people and to love God. But God's perfect love casts out fear. 
David Prince wrote about a family in an article that was published in 2018 in a, in a preaching magazine. A family who had adopted a child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought this little girl home, one of the things they told her is they expected her to keep her room clean every day. Must have been their first child. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it as if it was a way to earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by life in the orphanage. So every morning when her parents came into her room, it was immaculate. She would sit on the bed and say, My room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? Do you hear what I said? My room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? Broke the parents' hearts. But over a course of time, she began to learn that her parents loved her unconditionally. They would never forsake her. She was no longer a visitor trying to earn a place in the family. She was an inseparable part of this family. When she realized that, she no longer feared being put out. Even when her parents had to correct her and discipline her, they understood, she understood she would love. You see, love cast out her fear. That's what God's love will do for you and me. That's what it's done for me. As a believer, you're a part of the family. And everybody said? 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. King James says, a sound mind. He gives to us power, love, and self-control. One dictionary defines fear this way, and I put it on the screen because I really didn't want you to memorize this. A painful emotion or passion excited by an expectation of evil. An uneasiness of mind upon the thought of future evil likely to befall someone. Fear is a painful emotion or passion excited by an expectation of evil. An uneasiness of mind upon the thought of future evil likely to befall. first time I went hunting in eastern Washington they told me that there were rattlesnakes and we were walking through the brush and I could hear these leaves rattling I pulled out the pistol that had shotgun shells in it because I had a fear something bad's about to happen to me thank the Lord nothing did Elizabeth Godwin says this fear is created not by the world around us but in the mind by what we think is going to happen. Fear is created not by the world around us, but in the mind, by what we think is going to happen. 
Love the sound of pages turning. But that means I gave you a minute to write in that blank because I think the blanks on the page turn. Sorry about that. Fear is a sign of mental and emotional instability. However, God said, I give you power and love and a sound mind or self-control. So many people limp through life because of the effects of fear devastating their mind and their heart. How do we overcome fear, regain a sound mind? How can we recapture our heart that's been deeply wounded by the attacks of the enemy? We begin to regain what the enemy has stolen by grasping an understanding of who we are in the eyes of God. We begin to regain what the enemy has stolen by grasping an understanding of who we are in the eyes of God. He did not create us to be insignificant slaves. We were created to be strong and brave through the power of his love. We were created to be strong and brave through the power of his love. Instead of being brave, though oftentimes we succumb to fear. We fear everything there is to fear except God himself. Oswald Chambers, in one of his writings, wrote these words. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I want you just to give you a seal a moment to think about that. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. So what does fearing God mean? Didn't we just say that fear is a bad thing? Proverbs 1.7 said this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. I told you that Phobos, an irrational dread and interferes with our life, but it can have a different inference. The fear of the Lord can also be defined as a fear conjoined with love and hope. That is, therefore, not dread, but rather reverence. Deep reverence. Hope and love for God is what many of us are lacking in our lives. And that's why there's so much fear in our world today. But when you have that reverence of God, that fear of God, when you have fear, that means you don't have enough hope that God loves you and will bring you through. But remember, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We overcome the world by our faith. That's the next chapter. I won't get too far ahead myself. Many people don't fear God or worship God because they have not yet discovered or understood the fact that He loves us. Satan feeds this lie that to God we are insignificant. You're a horrible, rotten sinner. Therefore, we walk through life feeling small. 
This feeling of worthlessness creates the fear that has greatly ensnared us. We fear every little thing in life, and we're afraid that God sees us too insignificant to bother with. Because we don't understand how God views us, we think we're too unworthy. That we're unable to approach Him for help. We think He doesn't want to help us, so we try to help ourselves. And when we try to help ourselves, we are really small and insignificant because we cut ourselves off from the source of all power, the power of God and His love. It's a gigantic circle of seeing ourselves as being worthless and making ourselves worthless. It's kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy. And if it won't cease until we begin to see ourselves through the eyes of the Lord. James 4.8 said this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. If you'll draw near to God, allow yourself to be made perfect in love. Be made perfect in God who is love. Then we'll abide in His power. For when we draw near to Him, we finally realize God has redeemed us. God has chosen us. He's adopted us to be His children. We are indeed children of the King. We have full protection granted to us by the King. We are connected to his authority, to his power. So, we have love for our brothers. We have love for our brothers. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love God. His brother. The fifth evidence we have that God lives in us and we are in Him is I love my brother. How I love my brother. Now I suppose there's more than one way to interpret this word brother. We could look at it and say, God only commands me to love those who are part of the family of God. My brothers and sisters here. Those people in the world, I can hate them. But if you take the whole scripture, the whole Bible, remember Luke chapter 10? An expert in the law, a lawyer came to Jesus to test him. Said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, what do the scriptures say? And the expert in the law says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you're correct. Do this and you'll live. Trying to justify himself, the lawyer says, and who's my neighbor? And you remember the story that comes after that? There was a certain man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he fell among thieves, robbers. And they beat him up and left him lying in the ditch, taking whatever valuables he had. And a priest come by on the way to Jerusalem and passed by on the other side. A Levite came by, and he too passed by on the other side. Probably needed to keep ceremonially clean. They couldn't touch somebody bleeding and go to the place of worship. Probably. It doesn't matter. It was a parable, he told. Then he said, but a Samaritan came by. Samaritans hated the Jews. The Samaritan stops, bandages up the man's wounds, because he had a first aid kit. 
No, that means he tore part of his garment and used it as a bandage. He put him on his donkey, took him to the city, paid the bill for him to be in an inn, and said to the innkeeper, if he stays longer than what I paid for, I'll pay you the next time I come through. Jesus said to the expert in the fault, now, who is the neighbor? And what else could the expert in the law say? The Samaritan. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Five quick points, and we're done. Application points. Love. Choose to love people. Love your brother. Love your neighbor. Because you know God. Because you know God. And God is love. Because you know God. Number two, love your brother because God loves you. God loves you. We love him because he first loved us. That's what it said. And that's a whole different sermon and we won't get into that. God loves you. Number three, love because God lives in you and you in him. And God is love. God is love. You become God's hand extended. You become God's feet walking. You become the heart of God being manifested in people's lives. Number four, love because God has forgiven you. Love because God has forgiven you. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 4.32. If you ever get to feeling like, I can't forgive that person, you need to remember that Jesus said, if you don't forgive, the Father in heaven cannot forgive you. Number five, love because you are committed to the Lord. You are committed to the Lord. And if you're not, you can be before you leave this place. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead, confess with your mouth that He's your Lord, you'll be saved. His love will move into your heart because He is love and He'll move into your life by the power of His Spirit. He'll transform you on an ongoing basis as you submit to that love on an ongoing basis. I want to stand and sing what we sang last Sunday morning.